You are listening to You, Me, and an Album, episode 141. I'm Al Melchior. And then the next track is a cover of, of James Taylor's Don't Let Me Be Lonely Tonight, which is not a song I was particularly into in the James Taylor version. So it was like, you know, they go into it and it's, you know, total slow jam. And it was like, oh, wow, they do this. And then it was like, oh, wow, they do this great. That was Dan Epstein talking about the Isley Brothers' 1973 album, 3 Plus 3. Dan is a baseball writer and the author of Big Hair and Plastic Grass, Stars and Strikes, and The Captain and Me, all books about baseball in the 70s. And he's written about music for numerous outlets, including Rolling Stone, Mojo, Flood, Jewish Daily Forward, and Guitar World. Dan was also a producer at VH1 and an editor for Revolver Magazine. Dan, thank you so much for taking some time out to discuss a favorite album, uh, bringing us back to the 1970s, which I appreciate. And uh, welcome to you being an album. Hey, thanks for inviting me, Al. Well, it's absolutely my pleasure. This is, uh, I mean, it's, it's my wheelhouse in the sense that it's, you know, the music of my youth. And yet, aside from the one well-known song from this album, I wasn't familiar with any of it. So it's, for me, a perfect album for this episode. Uh, a lot of fun. I think uh, we'll have a lot of fun talking about it. And uh, we're looking forward to that, uh, Dan. And before we, we dig into that, um, I would be absolutely remiss to also not mention among the other things that I, I mentioned in the intro that you have a Substack stack uh, called Jagged Time Lapse, and I'll provide all the information on that later on the show, and we can talk about that a bit. Um, Excellent. But... Uh, Let's uh, let's get on with it, and um, so very appropriate again, given what you write about that you've chosen uh, an album from the the earlier part of the seventies. So, what it was your your introduction to three plus three? Was it you know pretty contemporary to its release, or a little bit later on? Do you recall the the exact circumstances? I I recall the exact circumstances, and it was much later on. I I knew. I knew who's that lady or that lady as the official title is, um, you know, like I remember that as kind of like the ch- soundtrack of my childhood, you know, um, my parents didn't really listen to the radio much at home and they weren't big record buyers, you know, the other, that they seemed to have like Bob Dylan and Simon and Garfunkel records, but I don't remember them ever bringing them home. It's just like they were, they were there and they got played occasionally and Carol King's tapestry, of course. Um, but the, it, they would listen to the radio in the car. And so I remember, that lady being, you know, just part of this kind of collage of music that included, say, Tom Jones, She's a Lady, and uh, the Stampeders, Sweet City Woman, and all the, all that kind of like early 70s AM pop that, you know, touched into different genres, but, you know, it was all, they were all hits and they were all getting played at the same time. Who's that lady? But I don't really, you know, I didn't put it together that it was by the Isley Brothers. And I didn't really know anything about the Isley Brothers. Um, other than that, I would see, you know, throughout the 70s, I would see their, you know, names on like billboards. And I would hear their names occasionally mentioned. But it, it was kind of like, I understood that they were huge in the black community. 
but they, there wasn't this sense that they were, at least, you know, by the late 70s, they weren't really having these, in the late 70s, when I was really starting to pay attention to music, they weren't crossing over onto the pop charts quite like they had done earlier. So mm -hmm. it was, they were, you know, they were kind of like, to me, they were sort of a band in the same ballpark as like, I don't know, um, Confunction or Maze, where it's like they were clearly big, but they weren't talked a lot about in the white music world or in the mainstream. You know, you weren't seeing the Isley Brothers written about in Rolling Stone or in, you know, the music, you know, the entertainment section of the LA Times or, you know, or whatever. It was mm -hmm. just kind of like they were there, they were big, but they were not of my world. Um, it wasn't really until the 80s um, that I started understanding a little more about, you know, that they'd had hits going back to the 50s, that Twist and Shout was, you know, was was their big hit and, and Shout and, you know, and that they'd, they'd kind of been around for, for decades already, you know, before I even became aware of them. And then it wasn't until uh, 1989 that I discovered this album. Um, I had been really, in the mid-late 80s, I'd gotten really into 60s soul music, like uh, Peter Gralnick's Sweet Soul Music and Jerry Hershey's Nowhere to Run were kind of like my Bibles for you know, soul music discovery. And I was really into Otis Redding and Wilson Pickett and Booker T and the MGs and stuff like that. But 70s soul and like, like even James Brown was a little, you know, it was a little too exotic for me. Like I didn't get, you know, it's, it's like I liked the more straightforward soul music of 60 stacks and Motown. And, and then like, you know, but James Brown was like more abstract. It was all about like, you know, these funky beats and I didn't really get it. And then the bass player in my band at the time, like he was really into James Brown. He started, he, you know, kind of like put me on a crash course to like impress upon me why James had been such an important musical figure and how like he'd single-handedly like turned soul music into funk by putting the beat on the one i was like okay okay i get this and then there was this life-changing day and it was i think it was october 30th 1989 where it was this beautiful indian summer day in chicago and me and my friend jason who was also in my band and also my housemate uh we had a friend working at the uh, this Rose Records, which was a big music chain in Chicago, um, they had an outlet on uh, just off Belmont and Ashland in Chicago. This store was different than other Rose Records outlets because it was it was kind of like where their cutout bins were, of like like it was mostly cutout bins, and and so we we. Had a so we had a friend who worked there, and he told us that they're having a sale, and then he was you know, 
you know, at, I worked in a record store at the time and, and I knew all these other people worked in record stores. And it was this kind of thing where like, if you work at a record store, you know, like you would give discounts to friends that came in and they would give discounts to you. And so we knew that if we went to Rose on this, this Rose on this particular day, we could just like walk out with a shitload of records for really not much money. So that was, that was kind of our, our, um, our mission that day. And we went down there and we were going through all these records and they were not very well sorted. So it was kind of like, you know, it'd be like George Jones, Isley brothers and, and, you know, and Jason and I were sort of like holding up records to each other going like, should I get this? Should I get this? And so Jason, I think was the one who pulled the Isley's three plus three out of the bin, or maybe I did. And, you know, I was immediately impressed by the clothes they were wearing on the cover. It's just like six dudes just fucking pimped out like early 70s style, like, you know, you know, bell bottoms and 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 vests and and you know leather leather jackets and and you know apple caps and and they just look so badass and I, I remember saying to Jason or maybe he said to me that I should get this or I said should I get this but like you know it was three dollars um and but but I remember Jason knew the record and he was like yeah that's that's a great fucking album and other than that lady, I didn't know anything on it. So, you know, it was like, okay, cool, take it home. And so we, we, I remember we walked home. It was this beautiful day. We got home and uh, we smoked a joint and I put on three plus three and my world just turned on its axis. It was like, so that lady was fantastic, but every other track blew my mind on the record blew my mind for some reason part of it was and i didn't realize that this was part of the isley shtick but like there were four uh four covers of songs that, that had been popular around the same time all of which were way better than the originals <laughs> and then there was the ernie isley guitar thing which yeah. i didn't you know i didn't know and 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 i also i didn't realize that you know, I find out later that it was called three plus three because this was the record where the original core three of the Isleys, which was, you know, uh, Ronald, Rudolph and, and O'Kelly, uh, brought in, officially brought in three younger members of the clan, which was Ernie Isley on guitar, uh, Marvin Isley on bass, uh, who were their younger brothers and their brother-in-law, Chris Jasper on keyboards, um, specifically on synthesizers. And so it was kind of like, we're stepping into this new, uh, this, you know, we're updating our sound. We're, you know, bringing, bringing the younger generation in and the combination, I mean, and, and all three of them you know, brought some, you know, really brilliant playing and sonic colors to, to the Isley sound. But what hit me that day was Ernie's guitar, especially the extended solo on that lady, uh, parts one and two. And the 
just mind-blowing solo that closes uh, the Isley's version of Seals and Croft's Summer Breeze mm-hmm. on this album. And I just remember being high out of my mind <laughs> and listening to that that just wailing outro on on Summer Breeze. And and as as we were listening to that, you know, that there's kind of a fade on uh, a fade out on on Ernie's solo, and Jason kept turning the volume on the stereo up as the as the track faded out, so we could just hear, you know, the magnificence of it. And and there's just like one crazy lick after another. It's Hendrixy, but it's post-Hendrixy, and I was just just completely floored by his playing. And then, as a postscript, that night we went to see George Clinton and the uh, P Funk All Stars uh, at the Riviera in Chicago, featuring Eddie Hazel, who was like the other great, um, you know, funk guitar hero of the early seventies, and in, and he wound up dying like not a whole lot. Uh, uh, longer after that show. So to have seen him in concert was amazing. Uh, and he was incredible that night. And then to have seen him on the same day that I discovered what a brilliant guitarist Ernie Isley was, it just kind of set me down this whole uh, path of appreciating 70s funk guitar. And um, and to this day, uh, both of those guys are huge, huge heroes of mine. And I really kind of discovered them both uh, on that same day. And my life has never been the same. Oh, that's amazing. That is an incredible story. And, you know, also I'm, I'm glad to hear you have made that connection and granted it was natural to do so because you saw this concert the, the same day that you discovered this album. But uh, there was an episode on here not too long ago uh, on Maggot Brain. And, oh, right on. Yeah. And that was, that was my introduction really to Funkadelic and uh, Teddy Hazel. And so I, you know, I kept making the comparisons listening to this album. Uh, so I'm glad that that wasn't totally off base <laughs> for no, me to do so. Um, but also, you know, there's so much to um, kind of circle back to that you were talking about. But one thing that you brought up was how, uh, who's that lady? Well, I'm calling it who's that lady. I learned in the last couple of weeks that that's actually not the, the name of this version of the song. Um, and that also it's a remake. Uh, it's a cover of their, their own song. Right. Which they had originally done in the sixties. Who's that lady? Who's that lady? Beautiful lady. Who's that lady? Who's that lady? Who's that lady? That real, real, real fine lady. So I learned those things about it. Um, but that was my introduction to the Isleys. And so I found out much later, I think probably later than you did, I think probably in the the late 80s, that it was actually the Isleys who did Twist and Shout and Shout. And that blew my mind. So yeah. this whole three plus three era is really interesting to me for that reason that it, they really did become kind of a different band. They- yeah, well, they did, but but if you know, so so obviously this record 
and my love for it sent me, you know, down the Isley's rabbit hole. And and there are several records leading up to this that, like, they're um, like uh, brother, 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 which is, I believe, the one that came right before this. Um, uh, Giving it back, which is an album entirely of like rock covers. Um, and, you know, th those two records really kind of point the direction that 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 fully flowers here. But but they're very, you know, I almost feel like Brother, 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 Brother and Three Plus Three. Like those are kind of to me, they're like the soul version, the 70s funky soul version of Rubber Soul and Revolver, where it's mm. like like they really work beautifully together as the kind of a you know, parts one and two, but there's also sort of a before and after element uh, uh, to, to both those pairings. Well, and just one other thing I want to mention too, in terms of my my very uh, piecemeal exposure to the Isleys is so uh, I knew that lady and then much, much later learning that, you know, they went way back, like you said, to the 50s. And then in the early 2000s to hear Contagious yeah, and be like, what? This is still the Isley Brothers? Uh, you know, it's just a mind-blowing arc. As I get closer to the stairway I think they they had I, I forget what the statistic is, but it's something like they had a top ten hit in every decade from the fifties to like to the first decade of the twentieth twenty first century. They may have even had a top ten hit in the second decade. I, I don't know, uh, but yeah, contagious. That that whole record is is great. I mean, and that's basically just uh, by that point, it's just uh, Ronald, Ernie, and I think Marvin's on it. Um, and and it's funny because that was the first time I ever got to interview uh, any of the Isleys was on that record uh, for Rolling Stone. Um, and and I remember I had both Ernie and Ronald on the phone, and I, you know we're talking about the album. And I was just like, before I let you guys go, I gotta ask, you know, uh, Ernie, how did you get that guitar sound on that lady? And he was about to answer, and Ronald just steps in and goes, "Family secret." <laughs> <laughs> That's probably a better quote than what he would have told you. Yeah, although I did, you know, I, re I genuinely wanted to know. And thankfully, uh, many years later, I was working on a book called Stomp Box, which is about um, uh, effects pedals and basically like, you know, the, how all these amazing guitarists get their amazing sounds. And uh, Ernie did talk to me for that and did lay it all out. Ah, and so that beans. was, yeah, spilled the beans. But, you know, I mean, and it's very, in a way, it's very simple. It's, you know, for... For those listening at home who who care about this kind of gear talk, it's just a uh, Fender Stratocaster into a Electroharmonics Big Muff into a Maestro PS1A Phaser into a I believe a, uh, a Fender Twin Reverb. But 
that said, you have to be Ernie Isley or or close to it to really, uh, you know, d d d you know, so much of it's in the hands, in the playing, and uh, um, and you know, I'm I'm not Ernie Isley, so I've never <laughs> quite been able to to uh, duplicate it. Yeah, well, I guess that could be a project. Uh. <laughs> yeah, definitely. But I mean, there, there's a very, you know, what what I always come back to is with his playing is like there's whatever he does to achieve those sounds, there's a very life affirming aspect to it. Like, you know, I would say him and Brian may have queen, although they're very different guitarists, both of them, like, I can only feel happy when I hear them play. Like there's just, it's just like a shot of, uh, you know, straight antidepressant into my veins. And, uh, so I, 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 just uh I, I marvel at it and and uh I, I think you know and and i think you know unlike brian may i think ernie isley is still an incredibly underrated guitarist the isleys are still an incredibly underrated group uh especially in you know sort of the at least from the perspective of you know white music critics and and music publications i, I think they, they still i mean they've they've been incredibly successful i think they're in the rock and roll hall of fame but i just think they're still somehow deeply underrated yeah absolutely absolutely um so i want to go back to the experience that you had buying that album you know bringing it home put it on the turntable uh you and your friend listening to it and well, I mean, if you can kind of walk me through, um, like what it was, like you've said, it's life affirming. I definitely understand what you're saying about that, especially in terms of the, the guitar sounds on the album. But what, what was that like? You know, you're hearing a song that was familiar to lead off the album and then going into the, you know, the first cover, the James Taylor cover and, you know, just kind of going track by track. And I'm not saying literally you have to like walk through track by track, but just. Although, like, no, we could totally walk We, we can't do that or, you know, or just <laughs> skip around to, you know, whatever, you know, impressions are, are in your brain right now. But just the general experience of like whatever was unexpected or whatever, like you said, made it a life changing experience for you. Right. Well, I think, you know, I had the sense, um, and, and not unreasonably so, that a lot of, you know, a, a lot of uh, albums, not just in the black music world, but uh, just a lot of the albums that were released in the 1970s, you know, they were, they would be kind of front loaded where you'd have the hit first, and then the other songs might or might not be kind of up to that standard. And, um, you know, I think Stevie Wonder, um, who was making music at this time, uh, and, and interestingly, he, he recorded, he was recording at the record plant at the exact same time that the Isleys were recording at the record plant, uh, re recorded three plus three at the record plant in LA. And they shared the same, the records shared the same engineers, Malcolm Cecil and Robert Margaleff, who uh, engineered uh, um, inner visions uh, that Stevie Wonder was working on at the time also engineered three plus three. So there's, you know, there there are some similarities in like the the way the synthesizers are recorded and the textures of the record, uh, both kind of futuristic for the time. And that's something I did not put together until much much later. But at the time, you know, listening to this record, you know, I was I was kind of 
you know, taken aback at how like every track was really strong and in different ways, you know, it's like that lady is this incredible, you know, danceable funk jam, five and a half minutes, wailing guitar, um, just soaring, you know, soaring vocals, groovy backing harmonies. And then the next track is a cover of, of James Taylor's Don't Let Me Be Lonely Tonight, which is not a song I was particularly into in the James Taylor version. So it was like, you know, they go into it and it's, you know, total slow jam. And it was like, oh, wow, they do this. And then it was like, oh, wow, they do this great. And, <laughs> um, you know, Ronald Isley, again, like, you know, his voice is just a perfect pairing with, Bernie Isley's guitars. It's, they soar in similar ways. They have a similar kind of like, you know, just send this war sense of warmth all through your body. And he's just laying it down. I don't let me be lonely tonight. But, you know, and it's, it's, but it's a totally different sound than that lady. There's, you know, there's no wailing guitar. It's like Ernie's playing acoustic on it and it, they're just bringing it down and uh, and it's great. And then from there, it goes to the more kind of up-tempo original, if you were there, which I think, you know, in some ways is probably the weakest track on the record. I mean, it's it's solid, but there's nothing about it that really you know, it feels more like a pacing thing where it's like, all right, let's get more back into an upbeat groove and, and, uh, and it's a solid three and a half minute, you know, uh, it's almost a pop song, really. You're the one that makes my day a dream come true. Yet and still you wonder if I think of you. But then it goes into You Walk Your Way, which I think is it's well, which is an original of the Isleys, and I think is is actually kind of um a underrated highlight of this record. It's it's just this incredibly soulful breakup song. And you know, I, I in much later years I think I think a lot about the music of this period as kind of divorce rock, where it's like you know, the, the, this, this sense of like, you know, and, and maybe it's because my parents were getting divorced in the early seventies and every, the parents of just about every other kid I knew and at this time were getting divorced and they were all listening to Carol King's tapestry, which is kind of like the divorce rock, you know, <laughs> uh, um, uh, Rosetta stone or, or, or however you want to put it. I mean, it's like that, Everybody had that record and it was just like this key. It just tapped into what everybody was going through. And I feel like the Isleys, who actually covered several Carol King songs on uh, the previous record, Brother, 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 were picking up on that vibe. Maybe they were going through some of that themselves because You Walk Your Way is an incredibly deep song, just kind of like, you know, uh, laying out the end of the relationship, but also wishing the other person the best. And you walk your way, let me walk mine. Well,
beautiful, beautiful song. And I remember just listening to that and at, you know, the first time I heard it, just thinking like, you know, <laughs> these guys are deep. These guys are deeper than I thought. They're not just about dance tunes. They're not just about, you know, romantic slow jams. There is, you know, there's a lot of thought going on here, a lot of human emotion. Um, and then they follow that with the cover of the Doobies, Listen to the Music, which, you know, they they don't retool it that much, except that like Chris Jasper just is laying down this incredibly choppy, funky uh, clavinet uh, throughout the song, which which definitely gives it a different vibe than kind of like the hippie rock Doobies version. It, it, it definitely pulls it more into the Doobies world, into the world of 70s funk. Um, and, uh, you know, but, but well, well, sticking with the basic theme of the song, which is like, you know, people need the music to make them smile. And, uh, you know, so we're going to do that for the next four minutes. <laughs> um, but I feel like side two, so that ends side one and side one is great. But I feel like side two is where it really, uh, really takes off. Uh, the three plus three album really takes off. Uh, what it comes down to, which is is um, um, the song that leads off the record or leads off the side two, is is another Isley's original. And I feel like like that kind of, in some ways, it's kind of a fusion of what they were going for with "If You Were There" and we you walk your way. It's just like, you know, it's the song kind of talking about a relationship that's in progress. It's not, it's not a breakup tune. It's more, but it's more sort of like talking about like where, where we're at in this relationship and what is making this work and, uh, and why I'm into this relationship, even though it might not seem from the outside, you know, you know, you might not see from the outside what this relationship means to me, but I'm telling you. And it's got a great groove. And then there's this point, you know, a great Chris Jasper um, uh, clavinet on this as well. And then um, the there's a part where Ernie's guitar just kind of comes in for a solo. Just, you know, it almost like fuses with Ronald's voice. Like he goes for this high note, Ernie matches it with his guitar and then soars off from there. And that's that's just a goosebump moment for me every time. Massively underrated track. I think it may have been released as a single, uh, but you know, not a big hit. So uh, you know, I think that that's a that's a real key track for me on this record. Then they go into a cover of uh, "Sunshine Go Away Today" by Jonathan Edwards, which was again not a, you know it was kind of like a folky acoustic driven song that um, 
in its original version that I was not, I was aware of it, but it was never like a song that I particularly cared about, mm -hmm. but the Isleys make me care. And it's just, uh, it, again, great, great funky clavinet, um, great vocals. Um, Ronald sounds kind of pissed, like, like, you know, that the, uh, you know, this man trying to run my life, like it, it feels like, you know, he, he's sinking his teeth into this lyric there. It means something to him in a way that it doesn't mean to necessarily to Jonathan Edwards. And, you know, it's, it's, uh, it, it's very affecting his performance on it. And then that leads into Summer Breeze, which again, like a song that was pretty much omnipresent in my childhood. It's, you know, Seals and Crofts, very kind of hippie folk rock, very, you know, what what has come to be known as yacht rock, for better or worse. Um, I'll say and for worse. The, for worse, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it definitely. Like, it was funny. It was a funny way of looking at it at the time, but, like, I don't think Seals and Crofts were anywhere near a fucking yacht when they, when they wrote this. <laughs> it was, you know, it was all about, you know, this kind of hippie idea of, like, like, man, I'm coming home, like, you know, from the road or from, you know, wherever. And like my, my fine lady is at home and she's, you know, she's cooking up the lentils on the stove. And there's, you know, there's our, you know, naked child running through the yard. And, you know, it's just this kind of like kind of insipid hippie ideal. And the Isleys, good God, they take this somewhere else. And it's so... It's so fucking beautiful what they do with this song. They, you know, it's like you've, from the very first moments with, you know, this kind of like almost Asian lick that Ernie is playing, uh, or, or maybe it's, maybe it's Chris Jasper's doing on the synth. I'm not sure, but it's just like, it's, it's like your blood pressure drops. And and you can feel the summer breeze starting to blow in, and and Ronald just comes in with this, you know, high note, just kind of like he's he's digging the summer breeze that's all in his mind, and it's you know it's not really about this hippie lifestyle thing. It's more just about like they're completely plugging into this cosmic you know, this, this cosmic warmth and this, this sense of this summer breeze wafting in and just making you feel good. You know, they kind of hold that riff for a bit and then all of a sudden, the brothers come in at, you know, on the chorus and it's so, it's got such a great groove to it. And, you know, you, you're just kind of luxuriating in the, in the, in the summer breeziness of it all. And, you know, you just feel like the sun kind of like beating down on you and warming you and you're kind of relaxed. 
and you know it grooves through the song like that for several minutes and then you know it's again it's sort of like ronald hits this high note and it's like a call for ernie's guitar to come in and he just comes in wailing and and again this sort of like hendrixy thing but it's it's more soulful in a way and 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 he completely connects with his guitar into that you know he taps into that same feeling that ronald has been kind of delivering all through the song and but but then it just like takes it to the next level and you're sailing you're sailing out on the song with it It's really one of the greatest guitar solos of of all time for me, and um, and 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 just the fact that you know you can that he could hear something like the source material, this kind of hippie thing that's you know it's pleasant enough, but just that these guys could take it to this whole other place, and that Ernie could could cook up this guitar solo that's just so so otherworldly um you know if anything it, it gave me a new appreciation for the seals and crofts version because it's kind of like like all right you know i can listen to this now and see what the Isleys saw in it yeah. whereas before it was just kind of like this trippy hippie shit um <laughs> and and um so it's it's you know so so that's that for me may maybe even more so than that lady is is like the standout track on the album but then like okay like you could end the record here like that you know as an outro you know as the mic drop as the like you know send everybody home on a you know a perfume cloud that that would work but i love even more what what they chose to do which is like instead they end the end the album on the highways of my life which is another it's another isley's original it's another song that's really sort of like taking stock of where they've been and where they're going and you know that the 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 original isley's these guys are all in their 30s and i think even 40s at this point like they're you know they've been around they've seen some shit, and they're the highways of my life they're reflecting on all this and they're doing it to this incredible chris jasper like you know moob synthesizer soundscape that's like you know there's not you know for a lot of it there's not even a groove it's just kind of like it's just kind of there floating around them and then like it kind of like they kind of cook cook into this loping Isley groove towards the end of it that that makes sense but it's just like you know it's like the first part of it it's almost like this afterglow from from the orgasmic ending <laughs> of of summer breeze like you need something to calm come down and just to kind of yeah. you know breathe and take stock and maybe you know, take another hit off the joint or or or, <laughs> or your cigarette or, or or what have you. 
It's just such a perfect ending to a perfect, to me, a perfect album. You know, you have this idea that, um, and I think it's an idea that that was uh, voiced, you know, in a very unfortunate way by Jan Wenner uh, in his recent article or interview talking about like, you know, how black artists, you know, didn't really operate at the same intellectual level as as white artists of of the 70s and i think you know you listen to three plus three and and it's that's obviously a bullshit idea like so much there's so much heart and soul in this record but there's obviously so much thought that went into the sequencing of the record into the ideas and the isley's original songs um and you know the the songs are really you know perfectly written and expressed and it's like you know so so like to me this record i mean it holds its own with any record that came out in this period you know funk rock what have you folk and and for me i mean this is like okay i you know i can argue i i can understand the argument that this is not the greatest record of all time but i i feel like it's it's one of the greatest records of the early 70s and it often gets left out of the discussion it should be up there with intervisions it should be up there with you know if not what's going on it should be up there with with let's get it on or uh, i want you by marvin gay and and it should be you know and and it it is like push comes to shove if you had to go all right, what what album are you taking with you to uh, you know to the proverbial desert island? It's this one. It's you know, and I love so much early seventies music. I'll you know whether it's Black Sabbath and the New York Dolls or or, or you know or Marvin Gaye and Stevie Wonder or or what have you know or Nick Drake or you know what have you. But this is the record that like like not only is it funky does it have amazing guitar and keyboard work and amazing vocals but it really for me like covers this vast spectrum of the human experience it it makes you know it's joyful it's it's sad it's about breakups it's about having fun it's about just you know kind of meditating on happiness or or sadness or like where you've been in your life and where you're going it's 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 just the complete package for me so why do you suppose it's not held in the same esteem as an inner visions i think probably because the you know inner visions what's going on you know, those records came out of motown there is you know this sense that like any by that point there was, this, there was a sense that any record by Marvin Gaye or Stevie Wonder was an event mm -hmm. and you know yes that was true um you know and and certainly they had the art artistic chops to back that up but i think motown you know was this incredible machine and and by the early 70s it was firmly established as the black music label in the US and so anything by one of their marquee artists, which by the early seventies, you know, basically were, uh, Marvin and Stevie, like this was, 
this was news. This was heavy. This was important. Whereas the Isleys were on Teaneck, and and I think by you know by this point, Teaneck was their own label, and by uh, the early by '73 they were in partnership with Epic, which um, you know gave them bigger distribution. But Epic was not seen as a major player in the soul world. Mm-hmm. Obviously, it helped you know helped give the Isleys more. You know, better distribution and and more of a profile, and certainly this was a partnership that you know was very fruitful for the Isleys for you know through uh, the mid seventies, uh, you know where they had hits with like Fight the Power and uh, you know to a lesser extent uh, Live It Up, um, but the um, yeah I I don't think it, they were positioned as a major act at least in the sense that the white music establishment would understand they were a major they were a major act in the black world um they um and continued to be so uh for uh you know for the next decade and a half uh or at least the next decade and you know and, and i remember the first time i really kind of understood that you know beyond seeing them you know, seeing their displays in record stores and, you know, knowing that like, okay, they were, you know, like, like I remember thinking of them kind of like, in, like they were big in the way that Earth, Wind and Fire was big, although Earth, Wind and Fire started to cross over and have these huge top 10 pop hits that the Isley in the late seventies that the Isleys weren't having, um, at least that I was aware of at the time. But you know, it's, it's, and again, like Earth, Wind & Fire, I think they were on Epic as well, maybe, uh, the, or no, they were on Columbia, Columbia, right? Yeah, so so that was, you know, one, a big part of the same Sony thing, but uh, yeah, they were on Columbia. But yeah, I just, I, I feel like the Isleys were seen as this band that were huge in the black world and occasionally released a song that made the pop charts and that was great, but they were not... You know, they were not covered in Rolling Stone. They were not covered by the big, uh, you know, magazines of the day. They, and I think partly that was because they'd had such success for so long in the black world that they, like, it was sort of like, yeah, having the hits and, you know, was great. But, like, being on, you know, being on Soul Train, being on, on the Midnight Special, that was kind of like as far into the mainstream as they went and maybe they were okay with that or maybe they didn't you know think to push like how can we you know how can we get some of that stevie wonder spotlight how can we get some of that marvin gay action um because they kind of you know had their own thing and they were very good at it and very comfortable in that world. So that, you know, it's possible that they just weren't, you know, that they weren't pushing because they didn't need to push. Yeah. They didn't think they need to push. Yeah. I, I think it's, you know, it's an interesting album too, like you said, because of, of all the covers, it's, it's nearly half the album. And it reminded me of records at that time, you know, getting albums and it was really common for, for, artists to cover songs that were really recent 
in, right. a, in a way that I don't think it has been the same, you know, from like the late seventies forward. It's like, it seemed like everybody had like a Beatles cover or two on an album or, you know, on this one, it's, you know, obviously a few years later. And the, the difference to my ears of, you know, hearing these covers is, as you pointed out, they made them all their own. Yeah. And, and, and if you listen, if you listen to their record and, and, you know, and, they they were doing this for a while, like like the brother 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 record. That's at least half covers as well, maybe even more. Um, and and you know, there's like a, a medley of Crosby, Stills and Nash's Ohio going into or into Hendrix's Machine Gun. And you know, again, like you know, the, like they were thinking about this. This this was a statement. And and I think you know, and the Giving It Back record, which is all covers. There is the theory, and I'm not sure how on you know how much it's based in reality, but there was a theory that they were doing that because so many, you know, because bands like the Beatles and and um, you know all, all these other bands had like had hits covering the Isleys material. So they were going to give it back. We, mm. They were like, "Okay, we'll take your stuff and 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 do it better than you guys." Just to, you know, <laughs> it's, it's kind of a fuck you. But but I don't know how much of it was a fuck you because I think just naturally, like they and and they, you know, uh, they they would just hear these songs and be like, "Oh, we could do that, and we could do it better." What's interesting to me is that after three, the next album after three plus three is "Live It Up," uh, which came out in 1974. Which where there, um, there's only one cover, which is "Hello, It's Me" by Todd Rundgren, and the rest are originals. And then there's "The Heat Is On," which came out in '75, which is all originals. So it's kind of like you know. You know, I don't know if they were, you know, having Ernie as a full timer in the band uh, and Chris Jasper meant more, you know, like they were coming up with more original material. I don't know if they felt like they'd made their case like, OK, we, you know, we can uh, we can do your stuff better than you can. Now let's move on and just do our stuff. I don't know what the, the thought process was there, but but. But um, three plus three is the last really covers heavy Isley's record that they did. Yeah, and I mean, yeah, I guess we we can't know, but I mean, it occurs to me too that maybe uh, because they weren't enjoying the same kind of of success as you know a Marvin Gaye or a Stevie Wonder, that maybe maybe it was a bit of a strategic decision too because they had all these great covers on on three plus three, but why would you release? Sunshine as a single when it had just been a really successful single for somebody else. Right. And, and, and also, you know, there's a matter of royalties. It's like they were, right. yeah. you know, they weren't, they weren't making the same kind of money off those, of those recordings that they would from, you know, where, you know, something like fight the power, which is every track in there is, is by them. Yeah. So, uh, so they got, you know, paid across the board. Yeah. I also thought it was interesting too, that they, they cover, listen to the music and then, what, two years, one year, two years later, the Doobies cover Take Me In Your Arms. So they return the right. favor. Absolutely. Take me in your arms. Come on and rock me, rock me a little while. Hold me, darling. Rock me, rock me a little while. We all must be holding sometime. Right now, right now. I'm feeling fine. 
say what you like about the doobies, but like they, you know, they could play and, and their version of take me in your arms, which, uh, certainly the first version I ever heard. And, and, it, and, and it wasn't, you know, it, I don't think their Isley's original was that big a hit. I think it may have been one of those songs that like did well on the R and B charts, but maybe, you know, um, only, you know, didn't didn't fare as well on the pop charts. Um, so so yeah, so that 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 was that was a cool move on the eyes around the doobies part for sure. Yeah, and I got to say, I love that version. Uh, not yeah. to to compare it against Isley's, but that's that to me is probably one of my favorite songs from from that part of the seventies. I thought they did a great job with it. Yeah, ab- absolutely. Although uh, it's funny, I have this. I can never hear it without thinking of. Uh, of a memory from when I was like 12 and I'm, I'm listening to my aunt's copy of the doobies greatest hits. And that song is playing. And I was like, just kind of idly fucking around with like an antique lamp that my mom had that was in the living room and tipped it over and Uh completely smashed it as take me in your arms is playing. So it's like that forever is, is, uh, Uh is that sense memory of like, you know, the, the, uh, <laughs> the, the glass shade smashing, at, at, you know, during like the bongo part in, uh, take me in your arms. <laughs> I'll never be able to shake that. Yeah. Uh, it's, un- yeah, it's unfortunate, uh, but we all have, I think we all have associations like that with different pieces of music. So totally. Uh, well, I mean, you know, this is a great, just a, a great walkthrough of the whole album. Uh, and so much of what you said mirrored my own experience, which is kind of cool because I've listened to it like six times. Uh, and yet, um, you know, so much of what you said, I guess the only place where I would diverge a little bit was that with these covers and especially, yeah, listen to the music, uh, sunshine and, um, now which one, I, which one am I forgetting? Um, don't let me be oh, it's Summer Breeze. Play. Summer Breeze. Oh, Summer Breeze. Yeah. Uh, like, those were all songs that I, I loved. And, you know, you talk about the hippie associations with the Seals and Crofts version. And um, I don't know. To me, it wasn't. I, I totally see where you're coming from. To me, that that's not a hippie song. To me, that's a song of being a little kid in suburban Chicago on a summer day and, f- like, feeling that song, you know? Yeah. And, yeah. And, the, and you're right. The Isleys do it in a different way. And, and I would agree a more powerful way. I don't think I like one version more than the other, to be honest. Uh, they're just they're cool. different. They're different vibes that, that both for me completely work. You know, I, and, and I think in my interpretation as much of, you know, from my own experience, just like, you know, the Seals and Crofts one where it's like, you know, I grew up in Ann Arbor, Michigan, uh, with a hippie mom and her hippie friends, and I fucking hated hippies, and and so that song just <laughs> just made me think of like you know you know these terrible health food restaurants that we would you know have to eat at and, and stuff like that. So it, it you know it, it was it was yeah again it's hard for me to, to to divorce that from from the actual song, and so the Isleys I think you know the Isleys helped me divorce it from this song because like I said like I can go back now and listen to the Seals and Crofts version and enjoy it and not have that baggage anymore because it was like the Isleys exercised it yeah and I can totally see how, how it would do that. And that that's interesting because you know I was listening to your your analysis of it and being like wow I didn't get that from that song at all I wonder why I didn't get that but my parents were the antithesis of hippies 
So, yeah, you yeah. know, the, the, the life circumstances, you know, maybe not as dramatically as your, your lampshade uh, <laughs> anecdote, but, you know, our life circumstances do color how we, we hear these songs. And uh, which, is you know, and, and not to not to make it about me, but um, the but I guess I am the guest here, so I, I can do that. Yeah. Um, but but so so my Substack jagged time lapse. That's that's really what it's about. It's it's about the way that music can kind of um, transport you. You know, serve as this kind of like time machine in a way that I don't feel like any art, any other art does, or it can completely take you back to a specific moment in time. You know, the time the time that the music was made, or the time you discovered. Uh, that music uh, for the first time, or really got into it for the first time, and that, and how your own personal experiences color it, you know, in turn, and and you know your your version, uh, your your experience with uh, Seals and Croft's Summer Breeze, just as valid as mine, you know, and and that, but and that's the beauty about music is that you can kind of Im, you know imbue. You, your own experiences on it and vice versa. Uh, and, and again, I, I don't think any, you know, maybe film to a degree, but I, I really feel like, you know, a song will take you someplace, you know, in a minute, uh, in a way that a film uh, might not do, uh, uh, you know, in, at least in terms of your own life experience. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, uh, I'm I'm really glad that you've uh, introduced me to this album, and I you know and I know more. I'm than really just glad the, that you dug it. Yeah, to, no, totally, totally. And I you know it took a couple listens, as it often does. Um, it took me a couple listens to kind of get it, and I, I think a good example of that would be the cover of Sunshine because mm-hmm. it is a a pretty radical reworking of it, and uh, particularly in the in the chorus where Ronald Isley just sort of almost drops out <laughs> completely from right. the chorus and you got, you know, the, the, the backing singers, uh, you know, singing the, you know, run, run his life, run his life. And it's, you know, like, you know, why'd you do that? But it's almost like he's so overwhelmed with, like you said, kind of the frustration that he can't even bear to sing the chorus. And it's like, okay, that's, that's pretty cool. I want to ask you how much does it cost? I'll buy it. Time is all we And then it makes this really cool dynamic thing because, you know, it's like he drops out and then he just like, I'll be damned, you know, right. just like he come, comes back in just like to just punctuate the fuck out of that. And exactly. Uh, yeah, exactly. So, you know, making those kinds of adjustments and also coming in with the preconceived notion like, oh, this is going to be, you know, 40 minutes of that lady, you know, and, and like right. I said, there's so much variety. Uh, so it, it taught me a lot about who the Isleys uh were and are as, as a band. Um, so yeah, very, Good. very cool experience and very grateful, uh, Dan, that you, uh, first of all, that just that you came on here and that you, you picked uh, this yeah. album. Yeah. Well, I, I hope other people will, you know, people will listen to this show and will, will, uh, you know, if they've not discovered the, the, the wonder of three plus three, that they'll seek it out because, you know, again, again, it's, it's like one of these records that, you know, it's, 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 so many records from the 70s you know if if you're into vinyl for instance as i am 
so many records from this period now fetch a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's it's like it's hard to find, you know, a, a, a nice copy of Inner Visions, for example, for like under you know, original copy for like under 25, 35 bucks. Three plus three, you can still find for under ten dollars, like like an original copy. And you know, again, I think it's just part of this. Like people don't know like what a great record this is. And and you know, if you can find a copy, you know, in the bins, grab it because it it it, it may change your life. It certainly changed mine. Yeah, I can understand why. So, uh, very very cool album. So I I do want to talk about your your work. Uh, you, you mentioned the Substack, uh, so people should absolutely go check that out and easy to find. It's just danepstein.substack.com. It is called Jagged Time Lapse. Uh, there's a variety of subscription options. Um, what's uh, what's new or, or not so new on, on the Substack? Oh, uh, well, um, you know, we're, uh, when is the, when is this episode going to run? This is, uh, well, very good question. Unfortunately, I don't have that schedule. Uh, I'm uh, just kind of guessing, I think, uh, mid-December. Okay. Um, so, you know, we're, we're in December, so I'm a huge Christmas music fan. So there's probably going to be a lot of, uh, Christmas oriented, uh, music topics coming up. Um, I'm, um, yeah, I, I, and, and, you know, all, all kinds of stuff, uh, along, along those lines. I'm always fascinated by, um, I posted this last year, but uh, I'm sure by the time you listen to this, I'll have reposted it again for everybody's uh, enjoyment. I'm fascinated by um, that there are these tapes floating around out there, mixtapes of basically Christmas mood music that used to be played in like Kmart and Kresge's and shopping, you know, to kind of like, you know, I mean, on a very base level, it was like to put you in the holiday mood so you'd buy more shit. But there's something that like, again, it just takes me back to being a child and being in a department store, like with my parents or with my grandparents and just grooving on the lights and the decorations and like just that pre-Christmas excitement. And, and uh, you know, it's and and, you know, we, um, you know, my dad's Jewish, my mom's not. We were, I was not raised with any kind of religious background. Um, I just, but, you know, we celebrated Christmas and I was, you know, I, I just always really connected with the kind of, um, the, the joy of the season, let's, let's say, and, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't about Jesus. It wasn't about, it wasn't even necessarily about presence. I just like, I felt like I connected with this, this kind of spiritual sense of like light in the darkness. Like this is the darkest time of year. You know, I grew up in the Midwest. It's cold, it's dark. Um, and then like seeing Christmas lights on people's houses in December, it just always made me feel good. And hearing this music just always like it, it, it was like, okay, weather's getting worse. It's getting colder. It's getting dark outside, but like there are all these reasons to be happy. So that's kind of how I connect with Christmas music. And then of course, like the, the, you know, the stuff from the fifties and the sixties, that's very, you know, some people might think it's kind of cornball or schmaltzy. I, I love it. And, uh, so, so yeah, so, 
I'm sure by the time this runs, I'll have uh, done a new post on all the kind of Christmas, you know, old school Christmas mixes that are out there. And that if you, if you, if you dig that kind of stuff, like I want you to be able to, to, to really wallow in it as, as I do. <laughs> well, I, I, yeah, I'm really uh, appreciating that you had the presence of mind to think forward to when this actually is coming out, because I, I don't have that presence of mind when I plan this podcast and every year. So this is the, yeah, basically the the third holiday season since starting this podcast, um, you know, where I'm doing episodes and, and then we get, get up on December and I've already, you know, I usually book these shows two, three months ahead. And so we get to December. It's like, I should have thought to book a holiday show, like a holiday theme show. So you're kind of, you know, saving my bacon here. And, Excellent. Uh, and and us some holiday related content. The, the other thing, the other thing that I, I will, I'll be doing is, you know, the, the Christmas. Um, so, so about 20, God, 20 years ago, um, I had uh, an amazing experience basically spending the day and part of the evening with uh, one-on-one with Lemmy from Motorhead. And um, it's something I've written about before, um, but I'm going to, but since he was both born around Christmas and died around Christmas, I feel like this is a good time to revisit that. And so for my paid subscribers, I'm going to, uh, put up like the complete transcription of the interview we did that day and the story of, you know, that, that amazing day. So if you're a Motorhead fan, which is of course completely, you know, I mean, obviously I contain multitudes. I love the Isleys. <laughs> I love Christmas music. I love Motorhead. So if you're, if you're into Motorhead, you'll definitely want to, uh, you'll definitely want to subscribe and be able to read, read those. Uh, uh, Cause it's going to be a multi-part, uh, entry since uh, it was such a such a uh, extensive interview and such a great day. Outstanding. All right, so lots to look forward to uh, there on the Substack and any other projects uh, coming up, books, uh, anything that people should be keeping their eyes and ears open for. Yes, I am currently working on a book with uh, Jeff and Stephen McDonald from Red Cross, uh, basically uh, telling the story of Red Cross, which. Um, uh, the, the tentative title is now you're one of us, the incredible story of Red Cross, the world's coolest band. And that's going to be out in the fall of 2024, which is next fall, uh, via Omnibus Press, uh, in the UK, but it's also, but it's going to be distributed here as well. And it, and, you know, I'm a huge Red Cross fan, so it's a huge honor to work on this book, but there are so many amazing and hilarious stories in this book. I feel like even if you're not a Red Cross fan, even if you just are a fan of the worlds they inhabited, which included like the whole South Bay punk scene of the late 70s, early 80s, the, you know, kind of uh, glam rock scene of the of LA in the 80s, although they weren't really part of that, they got kind of lumped in um, and, and rubbed shoulders with like Poison and Striper. Um, or, or the alternative music fan, music scene of the nineties, if you're a fan of that. I mean, they've got so many great stories about all these bands that they hung out with or gigged with or, um, rub shoulders with. And, and I, I, I think, uh, yeah, I think you're going to love it. 
All right, fantastic. Sounds great. So uh, uh, definitely uh, keep our eyes out for that. And uh, just in general, I want to give people uh, an opportunity to uh, follow you wherever it is best to do so. So uh, I know I am following you on Instagram and I I love the handle at Doc Fidrix, D-O-C-K. So uh, I... Yeah, that's 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 the the 70s. Doc Ellison, Mark Fidrich. That's correct. That's that's my, that's my two favorite pictures. Uh, that's my seventies uh, um, tribute. So yeah, so I'm on Instagram at Doc Fidrich. Okay. Any place else uh, people should keep up? Yeah, just just that and Substack. Those are the I, I don't do I don't do Twitter anymore because I don't like to hang out with Nazis. So uh, um, that's that's for now uh, where you'll find me. All right. Uh, excellent. Uh, and again, just to remind people, the uh, substack for Dan is danepstein.substack.com. I've got a substack too, youmealbum.substack.com. I am also, well, I, I have not deactivated uh, Twitter slash X, but I haven't been on there in a long time. So uh, you want to find me, a uh, better chance finding me on Blue Sky at Al Melchior. And then the show has accounts on Instagram and threads at Yumi album, both of those places. And those are the places to follow. If you want to know who is coming up, who the next guest is going to be and what album they're going to talk about. If you want to know that sort of thing ahead of time. So Dan Epstein, thank you so much. This has been an absolute blast. Um, oh, the pleasure is all mine, Al. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, uh, thank you. And uh, hope you have a, uh, a great holiday season and I hope you, you all out there. Thank you. And I, I hope all you out there as well uh, are having a, a great holiday season or about to have one. So um, I'll be back again in uh, a couple weeks time with another guest and another album. So until then, everybody, please do take care, be safe. And of course, listen to some great music. <laughs>